I, uh, I want you to dig back uh, in your memory bank for a minute and think about a time when you've experienced conflict. Now, for some of you, you won't have to think very hard because maybe the conflict uh, that you would think of is fairly recent. For others, you found yourself in a relatively peaceful era of life, and so you might have to dig a little bit deeper. But I, but I, want, I want you to call to mind a time when you were experiencing conflict with another person. Get their face in your mind this morning. Take a moment to remind yourself of those feelings that you experienced during a period of conflict. Conflict among people is really an interesting thing. In my role, I'm trusted at times to enter into people's messes and messy relationships to be a listening ear and and occasionally to hopefully offer some useful advice and point people to the cross. And one thing that I've that I've learned is that no two stories, no two experiences with conflict between human beings, no two journeys are the same. Some people tend to thrive on conflict, digging it up, stirring it up wherever uh, they can. Uh, their lives may, maybe aren't exciting enough, and so they have to, to seek that conflict out. And, and on the opposite end of the spectrum are those who absolutely hate conflict, hide from it whenever it occurs. But most people fall somewhere in the middle. Some are more inclined just to have a difficult conversation and get it over with when they sense conflict, while others just prefer to ignore it as long as they can and and hope that maybe time will just heal the wound. Uh, Some people have, have packed up their houses and moved over fairly inconsequential conflict with neighbors. And others have, have been ignoring significant conflict, maybe in their family or in their workplace, for decades. We all handle it and, and process it differently. But one thing is true. If you interact with other human beings, conflict is inescapable. It's just a reality of life. But, but have you ever thought about why that is the case? Why are human beings so prone to conflict in, in almost every relationship. And and, and I think the answer is quite simply that that since the fall, conflict lies at at the heart of the human existence. Uh, God created you and me, he created humanity to live in unity and in relationship with him. And since the moment that our first parents broke that fundamental relationship with God, conflict has permeated our existence. We see evidence of this right away in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. God asks Adam about his rebellion, about his disobedience. And what does Adam say right away? The woman that you gave to me, she gave me this. From that day forward, conflict has been at the heart of both our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. Today we're continuing in our sermon series during this season of Lent that I've entitled Focus on the Cross. Uh, Last week we were looking at God's patience with sinful humanity and on Jesus who enters in, who puts himself into a story pleading for more time for sinners to turn and to repent. Today our text gives us a little different angle on the cross as we focus on what Jesus has accomplished and and what that means for our 
lives. And at the heart of that is conflict and also reconciliation. We're reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. This is God's word to us. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful proclamation of what you've done for us. We thank you that you made a way for us to be reconciled to you. Lord, Lord may, we, may we reflect today on how we have it with you. And then on what that means for the purpose and the direction of our lives. So do your work as we hear from and receive your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our sermon text today is powerful and profound, especially when it's understood and considered in its historical setting and context. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. If you spent any time in 1 Corinthians, you know the many and varied challenges that this church faced. From blatant moral corruption to church members suing each other, from competitions regarding who was more holy or special because they were discipled by someone, all the way to people getting drunk at communion. This church was a mess. And so we always want to try to read a text first in its original setting, in its original context. How would this letter that Paul writes be heard in that particular situation, in that particular church? This approach helps us see and understand Paul's emphasis on reconciliation and the need to be reconciled with God and with one another. And so a good and proper reading of Scripture begins there, recognizing what this letter meant to its primary, to its original audience. But we also realize that Scripture is breathed out by God and it is useful, profitable for you and me as well. We understand that Uh, Scripture, especially a passage like this, isn't about us, but it's given for us. That we aren't the subjects to which this letter is written, but it it was written for us. In other words, we don't pretend like we're the initial audience. We read it understanding that Paul was writing to real people in a real church, but we read it recognizing that the Holy Spirit inspired those words with more than just the church in Corinth in mind. And so what we find in this passage are powerful words that help us see and understand what Christ accomplished for us. 
and what it means for our lives and how it affects our relationships and how it gives us the true and lasting purpose. As we examine our text today, I think it's helpful for us to start with the end. Our text ends with this grand, powerful statement of what Christ has accomplished. Here are four areas of focus from our text as we look to the cross. First, because of Christ, we are made righteous. Look at verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 21 is one of the most helpful and powerful verses that you will find anywhere in the scriptures. It speaks of a transaction that takes place. And notice the parties of this transaction, of this exchange. One who was righteous, who had no sin, who knew no sin, and then the rest of us, us sinners with no true righteousness to speak of. God took our sin, Paul says, and placed it upon his son, Jesus Christ. He became sin. And then you have Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who knew no sin, who fully obeyed his Father, and we get that righteousness credited to us as if we had done it ourselves. This is sort of like, remember in school, those group projects that teachers love to assign. There's always that one kid, maybe you were that kid, there's always that one kid who doesn't do a single thing when you're meeting together as a group. He's sort of semi-comatose through all the work. And really, the others in his group are fine with it because if he tried to do anything, he would just mess it up anyway. That's us. We're all that kid. Because Jesus does everything. We, we have nothing to offer. And if we tried to offer something, if we tried to do something, to contribute something to this work, we would mess it up anyway. We, we get, we receive the A on the project. We get all of the benefit while someone else did all of the work. That's us. We are the kid. And when you're in school, you might remember this, especially some of you hardworking students. You might remember how profoundly unfair that feels, especially if you're the kid who had to carry all the work of the group. But that unfairness, that sense of unfairness, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The cross of Christ is the setting for the group project in which only one person does all the work and all else receive the credit. Think about this. If you and me were on the cross, we wouldn't be able to stop talking about how much we had done and how everybody else did nothing. But not Jesus. See, this is exactly why he came. He came for that very moment, for that great exchange for that glorious transaction. He was born so that he might take your sin and my sin and give us his righteousness. I want to show you a picture, a picture of a man named Charles Chapman. On January 15th, 1981, a young woman was, uh, which wasn't that young, a middle-aged woman was uh, brutally attacked and assaulted in her apartment in Dallas, Texas. The days that followed when the victim was shown a photo lineup, she selected Chapman, the man in the picture, 
as the perpetrator. And in just a matter of hours, he was arrested and he was charged with a number of felonies. And Chapman was appointed a court-appointed attorney. That attorney wasn't too interested in, in doing his job. He visited his client once before the matter went to trial in August of that year. At trial, the defense failed to point out a number of clear inconsistencies in the story and in the investigation. There was a complete lack of evidence, of any evidence, other than the photo lineup. For example, Chapman had, uh, in the months before the attack, he had had all of his front teeth knocked out in a football game. But the victim didn't mention anything about her attacker missing his front teeth, something that probably would have been obvious. There are many other significant factual problems with the case, but nobody cared. So just as long as, as somebody was convicted, everybody was happy. Unfortunately, the same scenario plays itself out time and again over the years in our legal system, more often than not, uh, affecting people of color. Uh, after a relatively short trial, Charles Chapman was convicted, sentenced to 99 years in prison, forgotten about. This picture was taken 26 years after his conviction, on the day that he was exonerated, that he walked out of a Dallas courtroom a free man. The man that he's hugging is uh, the judge who heard Chapman's appeal and set him free. You see, there was DNA recovered at the scene, but in the early 80s, that wasn't something anybody thought about. And so when DNA testing became a common procedure for evidence in cases like this, the Defense attorneys, or the appeal attorneys for Chapman, requested testing. The state delayed any opportunity they could. It took them two years to find the evidence. Once it was found, they refused to pay for testing. And so the judge that's pictured found some extra money in his courtroom budget to allocate to allow this testing to move forward. And when the results came back, it was clear uh, the DNA at the scene belonged to someone else, someone who was not Charles Chapman. So after 27 years behind bars, Charles Chapman was set free. Since 1973, 186 death row prisoners have been exonerated in the U.S., most of them because of DNA testing. So one has to, has to wonder how many people went to the execution chamber. If we know that 186 were there and have been set free, how many went to the execution chamber completely innocent but weren't given the chance to prove their innocence because they didn't have DNA to prove it. An innocent man, wrongfully charged, wrongfully convicted, wrongfully punished for 27 years. See, that's the, that's the centerpiece of the whole story of Scripture. From the moment that sin and conflict entered our relationship with God, this was the plan for the wrong guy to be convicted, for the wrong guy to be punished. Upon that cross, the symbol of judgment and punishment, Christ would be declared guilty and would serve the sentence for your sin and for mine. He was innocent. It was profoundly unfair. But our eternal hope rests upon that unfair act, that great exchange when Jesus was made sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. Jesus dies so that we would be made right. And we could probably just stop there and, and, and just rest in that reminder for today. But Paul doesn't stop there. 
You see, he's been building to this declaration of what Christ has done for you and for me, and, and he's made it incredibly personal. And that brings us to our second point. Second, because of Christ, we see people from a new perspective. Look at verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Because of Christ, because of what Jesus has done, we see people from a different perspective. Depending on on the translation that you read from, it might read something like this. We regard no one according to the flesh. What's Paul saying here? To regard someone according to the flesh or from a worldly point of view is, is to view them from an entirely human perspective. To look and to make evaluations and assumptions based upon things like status, whether it's social status or financial status. It means to view people based upon their achievements, their contributions, their outward appearances. We are constantly evaluating people. You, you are constantly making evaluations, both conscious and, and subconscious, about whether someone is worth your time, whether someone is worth your emotional energy. You're making decisions about how you'll posture yourself in relation to another person. Will you be warm and receptive? Will you be cool and standoffish? Will you be vulnerable? Will you be guarded? We all do it every day. It's part of human interpersonal interaction. The question is, what criteria do we use when we evaluate people, when we make decisions about people? Will I see this person as a a threat to my comfort, as a threat to my time, as someone who's encroaching on my own personal sovereignty, upon my self-worship? Or will I see them as one for whom Christ died, one who bears the image of their creator? How and from what place will I consider and regard others? But I would argue that it's more than just viewing from a worldly angle that Paul's talking about. It gets to the core, to the heart uh, of our intentions as we think about other people? Do I view others purely for my own gain? Do I see others as a commodity from the perspective of what I can get out of them? That's the way of the flesh, as Paul says. How can this person benefit me? How can I turn or manipulate this particular interaction into something that serves me, into something that works for my good, for my benefit. Paul's words cause us to evaluate. Am I viewing others from a worldly perspective according to the flesh? There's another way in which his words confront us. Am I viewing people as merely flesh? Think about that. Am I viewing people, and this is the way that our world views people, as if people are merely flesh? No, Nothing transcendent, no eternal value, nothing of innate worth or value, something to be used. Because of Christ, we see people from a new perspective. I recognize, when I hear the gospel, I recognize that Jesus looked at me, and he made the decision that I was someone worth dying for. 
And that that's true of everybody that I will ever meet. I have no more claim to the salvation that Jesus offers than anyone else. My only righteousness is that which he has given to me. And that changes the way that we see people. So what has Christ done? Because of Jesus, we're made righteous. Because of Jesus, we see people in a new way. And and third, uh, because of Christ, we are new and different people. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Jesus' death for us means that all who believe are given a new nature. Scripture speaks of this idea in a number of different ways. We could look at Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus when he talks about being born again in John chapter 3. We could look at Paul's comments in Romans chapter 6 about how in our baptism we're buried with Christ and raised to walk in new life, newness of life. But I think for today it's most fitting to stick with Paul's statements just in the previous chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Listen to this. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. So when we read chapter 5, our text for today, in light of that which has come before it, we see that Paul speaks of daily renewal. Our inner self being renewed, made new, day by day. We, We are made new by faith in Jesus Christ, and yet we have a need to be renewed each day. Because while our old nature has been crucified with Christ, we continue to struggle. We continue to sin. We continue to wrestle with our flesh. You are, by faith, a new creation. That is your identity. That is who you are. And the rest of your life demands daily renewal in that. Daily repentance. Daily turning from your sinful nature, your propensity to rebel and and turning back to the cross. But this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. God declares that you're new even when it isn't fully a reality in your life. God declares that we are righteous by faith, even when we give him many reasons to reconsider. He never does, uh, he never reconsiders, he never thinks twice, because our righteousness, as he has set up his economy of righteousness, our righteousness is not our own. Because we are right with him by faith on account of Christ, and not of ourselves. It's not something that we've produced. By faith you are a new creation, Scripture says. It's what God declares. And here's the thing. If you look within your life, if you look within yourself for confirmation of that, for proof of that, you'll never find it. If you look into your own heart to confirm that you are a new creation in Christ, most of what you will see is the continual battle of being at the very same time simultaneously sinner and justified. And so we trust God's word. We believe what God has said. That's why, in part why he gives us a holy baptism. So that we have the tangible place that we can look back to and you can hear Paul's words 
from Romans chapter 6, when, when Paul says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Because of Christ's death, you are made new. We are new and different people. And finally, this morning, I want you to see, because of Christ, that we get to tell others. Look at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself, who fixed the conflict that existed between us, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God reconciled us to himself. God resolved the conflict that existed. And Paul says that this is true for the whole world. And did you hear that profound statement in the middle of that passage? That God is not counting people's sins against them. Hear those words this morning. By faith, God is not counting your sins against you. If you know your sin, you know your need for a Savior, and if you believe that Jesus died for your sin, God is not counting your sins against you. And Paul says that's the message with which we have been entrusted. That it's the message that he has committed to us. And when we, we see this play out uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. We see this play out in the Corinthian church in verse 20. He says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, all conflict, all Human conflict has its roots in our, in our broken relationship with God. And so the message of being made right with God doesn't only have implications for our spiritual lives, but for all of our relationships. And this message with which we have been entrusted, this proclamation that because of Christ, God is not counting our sins against us. We, we are free to share some of you might be familiar with a man named Karl Barth. He was a Swiss theologian, he was a scholar. He was born in 1866, or sorry, 1886, died in the 60s. Barth was asked one day in an interview an incredibly difficult question. The question was this. The interviewer asked, if you could meet Adolf Hitler, what would you say to him? I want you to think about that, that question. Bart was just three years older than Hitler. He lived at the same time. He lived through Hitler's attack on Europe. And so in the midst of Hitler's wicked agenda, he's asked, if you could meet Adolf Hitler today, what would you say to him? And Bart thought, and he replied, I'd say... While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the heartbeat of Paul's message to the Corinthians in chapter 5. And I think his message to us today, 
be reconciled to God. And then tell people how good this news is, that by faith, God is not counting our sins against us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we all need to hear. You see, the very essence of the Christian faith, the very core of who we are as Christians is believing a word, a proclamation, a message from the outside, that external voice of Holy Scripture that breaks through our thick skulls. It says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. The innocent one took the punishment so that we might be credited with his innocence. That's the gospel. That's the message that we have been given, that we have been entrusted with. That's the message that we are sent to share. You see, evangelism isn't overly complicated. There are thousands of books and courses and lectures and approaches to sharing the gospel, to sharing Jesus, and almost all of them overcomplicate the matter. By faith, God isn't counting our sins against us. Be reconciled to God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Because of Christ, we are made righteous. Because of Christ, we see others from a new perspective. Because of Christ, we are new people, new creations. And because of Christ, we get to tell others. Let's pray. God, help us to see just all of the things that you have done for us. Help us to see and believe and understand today how you have fixed the relationship, how you have dealt with the conflict, how you've reconciled us to yourself. Thank you that you put forward, as scripture says, your son as the sacrifice for our sins, that by faith you are not counting our sins against us. Lord, give us eyes to see each other, to see those that we come in contact with today and this week from a new perspective. Help us to see everyone as someone for whom you died. Help us to see our true identity as a new creation. Help us to see ourselves as your ambassadors sent with an incredibly simple message of life and hope. God, we pray that you give us opportunity to share what you've done with others. Not because we have to, because we get to. Make us your ambassadors. Give us opportunity to proclaim the hope for all people that you are not counting our sins against us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.